0: Um, he's a professor of political science at uh, Duke University. Um, a very esteemed basketball program. Um, uh, well, we'll see what happens when the game happens, but anyway, at some future, future point. Um, I'll tell you just a little bit about basically uh, the kind of work that uh, he's done and uh, the impact that he's had on the field, which is phenomenal. Um, he's uh, His primary work is really on internationalized military conflict and he'll talk to you some about that today. Uh, he's also done work on strategies of international conflict resolution, uh, public opinion, uh, especially on the use of force questions, uh, studies of military conflict, uh, one of my topics, transnational terrorism uh, that he's done work on. Um, uh the role of norms in international crisis bargaining uh he's the author of three books uh the power of legitimacy the role of norms in crisis bargaining uh choosing your battles american civil uh civil military relations and the use of force and most recently the book that you'll hear about here in part uh paying the human cost of war american public opinion and casualties in military conflict by the way in uh, 2006, he won the esteemed uh, Carl Deutsch Award uh, from the International Studies Association for the most important book in international studies uh, that year. And uh, he's gotten quite a bit of play and the notoriety for the work that he's doing right now. Um, and with that, I'll turn the floor over to him.
1: Okay. Um, I am Chris Jelte, and um, I'm very excited to be in Columbus on Columbus Day. and um, uh, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you today. Um, I'm going to talk to you about uh, a sort of a stream of research that I've been working on for the past uh, seven or eight years. Um, the first half of the, uh, the material that I'm going to talk to you about today is from uh, this book, uh, Paying the Human the Cost of War, that uh, came out a couple of years ago. Uh, the book is co-authored with my colleague Peter Fieber and with Jason Reifler, a former graduate student at Duke who's now at uh, Georgia State. Um, and then, about halfway through the talk, I'm going uh, to tr- uh, shift into talking about some follow-on research that I've done uh, as solo-authored work, um, with some support from the National Science Foundation, uh, trying to address some of the um, address some of the uh, questions I think that are raised uh, by our book and that we tried to answer to the best uh, that we could during the book, but that um, that uh, you know I think required some further research. And then I'll. Uh, Conclude with sort of some of the directions that my um, my research is going um, in the future. So, uh, but first, I want to uh, try to uh, say something about why it is that somebody who's coming here interested in a position in international relations would come to you and talk about public opinion and public opinion data. Um, but I actually think that uh, studying public opinion is something that is really central to understanding the causal mechanism behind a lot of important theories of uh, international conflict. Um, over the last 20 years or so, um, one of the big literatures in international conflict uh, that, that's sort of grown up is literature on the democratic peace and this finding that the democratic states don't use force against one another. And the central mechanism really at work in, uh, in a lot of these theories, especially the so-called structural theories of the democratic peace, is a public opinion mechanism, um, and in particular a mechanism about how the public responds to casualties. It's a public casualties. Uh, related to this sort of literature, working uh, building off of work by people like Jim Fearon and others, um, uh, there's, uh, there's been a large literature that, that's developed on audience costs and in particular the ability of democratic states to generate audience costs. And again, here I think the key causal mechanism is, is public opinion and how the public allegedly responds to um, use of military force, bargaining strategy, and so on. And so we need to really study public opinion in order to test the causal mechanisms behind these theories. Um, a third area where I think public opinion is, Im- is important for studying international conflict is uh, literature that's out there on the impact of international organizations and NGOs, um, in particular, their, uh, their ability to um, coerce or persuade uh, leaders. These are uh, institutions that states clearly um, invest a lot of resources in and, yet they're, and, and, and seem to have some impact on be- state behavior. But they don't actually have a lot of economic resources. They don't have a lot of military resources. How is it that they uh, coerce or shape state behavior? And I think building off of uh, work uh, by people like uh, Alex Thompson here at, at Ohio State and um, uh, and uh, others, um, um, uh, Chapman at, uh, at Texas and so on, um, that there's uh, there are arguments out there about how the public can use these institutions as cues. Um, to uh, help them decide when to use military force. And, and I've actually, I've done some empirical work on, on that particular subject. I'm not going to talk about it today, but I'm happy to talk about it in two minutes. Uh, and then recently, of course, um, there's been a great deal of interest in uh, in terrorism um, and uh, terri- terrorist violence. And one of the big arguments that's out there uh, from uh, Robert Pape in 2003 is that democracies are more likely to attract terrorist violence. Um, and again, the, the core causal mechanism um, is public aversion to casualties. So I think studying uh, public aversion to casualties really is something that's central to a lot of causal mechanisms in, um, uh, in, in, inter- in international relations. Um, I also think it's important to study uh, public opinion and the use of military force for uh, normative reasons, um, in, and uh, in, in particular, as citizens of a democracy, I think it. Um, it would be nice to think, or there is an argument to suggest, that it, would be, it would be nice to think that um, the American public could actually have um, some kind of influence over uh, elite decisions to use military force. Uh, we, as citizens, when we delegate um, uh, the authority to use lethal, lethal force to um, to our elected representatives, it's one of the most important sorts of delegations we make, and we'd like to know whether or not the public is actually capable of placing any sort of uh, constraints on this sort of use of force. And in order to understand the answer to that question, we really need to understand how is it that that the public forms its attitudes towards military conflict. And I'm going to talk today about two different uh, models of how this happens. One is a partisan model that basically says that individuals don't have any kind of information about what's really going on in the world, and all they do is they collect up information from their partisan elite. And then they echo those beliefs back to them. Um, I'm going to argue, on the other hand, for um, a, an alternative framework that suggests that people actually do gather some information about what is happening in the world, in particular what's happening what's going on um, on the battlefield, um, and that this allows them to uh, this, this allows them to act as uh, potentially as something of an independent constraint on the use of force. Now I recognize that in order to, to make the move from uh, public opinion and, and what the public thinks about uh, military force to actually changing or influencing policy, you need to talk about translating these attitudes into political behavior, voting behavior, protest behavior, things like that. I have done some work in that area. I'm not going to talk about it in the, in the talk today, but I'd be happy to talk about it in the Q&A um, if, if you're interested. But I'm going to focus today really on this question of how the public um, forms its attitudes towards these So, if you're going to talk about public, uh, public opinion and the use of force, um, you of course have to start with John Mueller, um, who you are all uh, very familiar with. So, um, uh, and, and really his, I think his work um, on public support for uh, Korea and Vietnam really started this whole, uh, this whole literature in motion, you know, his finding as you know is that um, support for those wars dropped um, as a function, directly as a function of casualties. Um, and uh, specifically, um, uh, the log casualties. Um, and in work uh, since, uh, since that work that, that builds on, on his research, I think, has built on his focus on costs um, to emphasize more of a, a, of a cost benefit framework um, in terms of how the public uh, evaluates. Um, uh, Evaluate the use of force and, and their willingness to use force. So um, I think everyone agrees that casualties matter and that the public cares about casualties, but they don't always care the same amount. And so the question then I think in the literature has become, what are the what are the different contextual variables that shape the um, extent to which the public is sensitive to um, uh, sensitive to casualties in military conflicts? And in the book we consider four different um, uh, four different kinds of arguments. The first focuses is on um, primary policy objective. That is what the goal, what the policy goal of the war. And I'm, I'm thinking here of work by people like Bruce Jentleson, um, who argues that the American public is willing to pay significant costs for certain types of missions, basically realpolitik missions, um, and less willing to pay costs for um, human, humanitarian intervention or internal political change, you know, spreading democracy and so on. Um, a second kind of argument is uh, built. Uh, building off a of work by John Zoller, for example, um, Adam Berinsky, Jamie Druckman, um, Eric Larson uh, argues um, that w- what matters is not what is the uh, sort of goal of the war in any kind of objective sense, but rather what matters is what, what do elites say about it. And in particular, um, do our politicians across uh, partisan lines agree um, in that the, uh, uh, that the they, uh, that they support the war. And if so, then the public will pay costs. If elites don't agree, then the public won't. Uh, the third sort of model we consider is that what really matters is international consensus. And in particular here, uh, we're thinking about um, authorization by the United Nations um, and, and the legitimacy that that sort of force gives. And people like Steve Cull have argued that that's the critical factor in, uh, in determining tolerance for costs. And then finally, uh, Peter Fever and myself um, In a work previous to this, it argued that the the, the critical factor was the likelihood of success, Um, and whether or not the public believed that uh, the mission was moving forward, making progress, and toward a successful conclusion. Now in the book, um, we do uh, do a variety of analyses of these specific mechanisms, we do a series of, of experiments looking, isolating each mechanism, and we do find some support for each of those mechanisms. I'm not going to talk about that uh, today, uh, but I'm happy to, to talk about it in the Q&A if, if you have questions about those experiments. Um, but I'm going to focus. Um, I'm going to focus more on uh, some aggregate data and, and cross-sectional data um, about the war on So the basic argument that we make in the book is this: um, that uh, we argue that um, when the public is Making a calculation about how the, the the kinds of costs, in particular, we're thinking about human costs, casualties, um, that they're re, that they're willing to tolerate and continue to support the prosecution of a war, um, they're really uh, they're really bringing together two different attitudes. On the one hand, they're thinking about the justification for the war. Why is it that uh, why is it that they think the war is being fought, and do they think that that fighting war for that purpose is the right thing to do? And uh, they bring that attitude together with um, a second judgment, which is, um, is the mission likely to succeed? So this is more of a retrospective judgment about um, was, this, was this the right thing to do? And this is more of a prospective judgment about having done it, do we think, uh, do we think it can actually result in an outcome? So the basic claim is that willingness um, to pay costs is a function of potential benefits weighted by the uh, probability that uh, you're actually going to observe those benefits. Um, we're not arguing that that's the only thing that, that, uh, that determines uh, the tolerance for casualties, so we would acknowledge that you know, p- uh, party identification, various demographic factors and so on also um, have an effect, but we want to argue that it's this calculation of potential benefits weighted by um, the probability that you'll receive them um is is the central or the most important calculation and in particular once a war is underway we want to argue that it's this variable the perception of success that is going to matter the most and the reason for that is once the war is underway the question of whether or not the war is the right thing to do is to some extent a moot point because the war is done right the war is underway and so the question now becomes should we stay should we stick it out and our argument is that the most important uh single factor in determining that Will be perceptions of success. So, um, in the book, we go through. Uh, we 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 start by going through uh, aggregate data on uh, public support for various military conflicts, ranging from uh, Korea to the present. Um, I'm happy to talk about Korea and Vietnam in the Q&A if you want, but I'm really going to focus on um, uh, today on the the data from Iraq and. It, the uh, the dark line there is um, support uh, pr- uh, uh, job approval ratings for President Bush um, from immediately before the uh, invasion of Iraq through um, August of two thousand um, and six. Uh, and what you can see is obviously over that time, uh, Bush became less popular. Um, but in addition to that, um, you, you can see that there does seem to be some relationship between. Popularity on the one hand, this dark line, and these other lines here, these are marked um, and scaled on the, on the opposite um, axis there as uh, the number of casualties that the U- U.S. suffers in various different phases of the war. Casualties clearly matter here, but as you just kind of eyeball it across the chart, they don't appear to be having the same effect at all different periods of the war. So, um, as were, for example, um, Toppling Saddam Hussein, and there are the images of you know the statue being pulled down in Baghdad, and so on and so forth. The U.S. suffers a couple hundred casualties, but support for the war actually goes up, right? um, uh, Starting in about May of 2003, we uh, we have um, the uh, you know the, the regime has fallen, but we start to have an insurgency set in after in in the wake of the the looting that went on there, and um, after the insurgency sets in. Over the next year or so, we uh, we do start to see a pretty steady decline in presidential approval in response to casualties. So here we seem we seem to see sort of very much like the you know what the what the Mueller argument would suggest, with one exception, which is right there. Um, that's when we yeah. This is a, this is the approval of the president in general. It actually correlates quite strongly with. Um, uh, so approval of, of Bush's foreign policy actually predicts his overall approval better than um, than domestic poli- domestic political support. Um, we use this basically for time series reasons; that you can get really nice consistent observations over a consistent period of time. Um, we did in the in the statistical model we control for various other kinds of factors that are going to be affecting his uh, popularity. So economic performance: how's the the, the Dow doing? Um, you know, appearances of, of democratic political candidates on TV during a campaign. So we try to control for other stuff that would also affect um, uh, that would also affect approval. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so um, so we have this you know strong inverse relationship here, but this little spike right when we capture Saddam Hussein. Um, unfortunately for President Bush, very shortly after we capture Saddam Hussein, the K report is released, which says there are actually no WMD in Iraq. Um, and so then you see the drop, uh, the drop back down shortly after that. So, but um, after that period, in about June of 2004, uh, things shift in Iraq and um, the, uh, the Bush administration ends the occupation and turns over authority to a new Iraqi authority and um, over the next six months or so um, pushes toward uh, elections. Iraq. And those were, if you recall, the ink finger elections. There are many you know, pictures of, uh, of people in various media with their fingers dipped in ink after having, um, after having voted for the first time. And so those were, I think, very dramatic images reflecting um, success in what was the new mission now that we found that there were no weapons of mass destruction. Now the new mission um, was spreading democracy. Um, and over this period, building up to those elections, um, I think there were a lot of, uh, there, there was evidence of progress in that direction. An interesting thing that we see is we see uh, over the six months between when we create, when we transfer authority to the Iraqi government and when the um, ink finger elections actually occur, um, we see just about exactly the same number of U.S. soldiers killed in Iraq, about 600, um, as occurred during this previous period here. Yet instead of a uh, you know, 20 point drop, in, uh, in presidential approval, we actually see an increase in presidential approval during that period. Now, um, after the ink finger elections, of course, there was stalemate in, uh, um, with, within the, um, within Iraq, and they were never able to form a government, and so on. And so, after that, you know, uh, things begin to slip away again. And so, we, after the ink finger elections, it then um, uh, we start to see the inverse relationship between casualties and, and uh, presidential approval. Once again, with the one exception of this period right here. Um, and again, that is actually the lead up to another set of elections um, that, were, uh, that were going on at that time in combination with a series of speeches that President Bush gave where he was emphasizing progress in Iraq. And their, I call them the victory speeches. There are lots of these banners behind them saying victory and, and so on. Um, so um, we, uh, just sort of eyeballing this, it seems to be the case that you know, progress on the ground really seems to matter in terms of how much uh, casualties affect. Um, presidential approval, uh, we put these data into a statistical model and as I was saying before, controlled for a variety of other factors and found that there really is a a very significant difference in the impact of casualties across these these periods. Uh, Casualties mattered a lot when things weren't going well on the ground. Casualties did not matter for support when things were going well. So these aggregate data, I think, are at least consistent with our claim that um, public perceptions of success on the battlefield have an important effect um, on the public's willingness to pay costs or willingness to continue fighting in a conflict. Um, but we can't really, because there, there are, in, in aggregate data like that, that are just sort of time series over time, there are all kinds of things that are likely to be mixed up together in, in what's going on in those periods. So we can't really isolate the causal mechanism very well until we turn to. Individual level data. So, between October two thousand and three and October two thousand and four, um, we did a series of uh, nine um, surveys, um, nine waves of surveys, asking people about their perceptions, their willingness to continue fighting in Iraq, their perceptions of success, their uh, belief about whether the war is the right thing to do, and so on. Um, the results across all the nine waves of surveys are really quite consistent, and I actually did another study um, again on my own in 2008 that also showed very, very similar results I'm happy to show you in the Q&A. Um, I'm really going to focus here just on one of the surveys, which was the one that we did in October 2004. This is immediately before um, the bush Kerry election, and so the dependent variable you can see here is um, the probability that an individual will say that they are willing to Support continuing the Iraq War, even if 1,500 U.S. soldiers are killed. Now, at the time the question was asked, there had been about a thousand soldiers killed. So, really, effectively, what this question is asking is, are you willing to stick it out in Iraq for about another six months? If you look at the, the sort of rate at which, at which people are getting killed, um, so that's the dependent variable. And then um, you can see here on the on the left, right axis, we have variation in um, perceptions of, of whether the, the mission is likely to succeed and on um, the axis going from front to back we have um, variation in whether or not you think the war with the right thing to do. So this interaction between um, right thing and, and success, we argue really explains a lot of the variation in, in willingness to continue fighting. Um, in the front left corner here we have the group that we call the Vietnam Syndrome group. Um, so these are people who think that uh, they strongly disapprove of uh, the initial decision to go in, and they think we're not at all likely to succeed. And so you can see uh, you know, only about 15% of them say they're willing to, uh, to continue fighting Iraq, which makes me wonder why the 15% want to continue fighting Iraq. But I'll set that aside. Um, and uh, so 15% there. Um, and then up in the, in the back right-hand corner, we have what we call the Bush Base. These are people who um, uh, think the war is the right thing to do and think we can win. As you can see, you know, 90% of them are willing to continue fighting in Iraq um, for another six months or so. Um, so this interaction of right thing in success really seems to have a very substantial overall effect, right? It drive, a uh, willingness to continue fighting from 15% up over 90%. That's a very large marginal effect. In addition, as I said earlier, our expectation was that well, while this, this interaction would matter a, a lot, um, there was, in particular, um, perceptions of success that would matter the most. Um, and you can see here by com- comparing the, uh, the very back corner there, which is what we call the noble failure group. These are people who, um, who believe that they approve of the initial decision to attack, but they've now become pessimistic about the likelihood that the mission will succeed. Um, they are significantly less supportive of continuing to fight than the folks up here who we call the pottery barn crowd. Um, and uh, you know, you broke it, you fixed it. And the colon Powell quote: "There's actually no such policy as the Pottery bond. But anyway, um, uh, so the Pottery Barn crowd—they disapprove of the initial decision, but they're optimistic that if we stay there, we can actually succeed, and we can actually win and stabilize the country. And, um, and those people are significantly more um, supportive of continuing to fight, which again matches our expectation that uh, that, that success will matter most. So. We find that this interaction between right thing and success matters a lot. How much does it matter compared to other possible uh, causes of willingness to fight in Iraq? And you can see here, these are the predicted marginal effects of a number of the control variables that we had in the model. And overall, it shows that our interaction matters a lot, and it matters a lot more than any of these other things. Um, so we asked people, do you think that Democrats and Republicans agree on staying in Iraq and do you think um, we should use military force even without UN approval, and what do you think is the major um, uh, uh, the policy objective of the war. Um, all those other the theoretical arguments that I laid out at the beginning, all of those things do matter and we find support for them, but they don't seem to matter as much as success. In particular, one, uh, one uh, item that I would point to is the impact of party identification. We do find that party ID has a significant impact on willingness to continue fighting, but it's not nearly as large as the impact of these other variables. So, that's the book. Um, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff in the book too, but um, but but that's sort of the uh, you know uh, the, the main point, um, which is this this argument that uh, it's the interaction of justification and perceptions of success, and in particular, its perceptions of success. That, that really drive uh, the public's willingness to continue fighting. This, however, raises I think an important question, um, which we sought to answer to some extent in the book, um, but that I've addressed more in some follow-on research. Which is, what is it that causes people to think we're succeeding? How is it, how do people know when we're winning? And I'm going to contrast for you two different um, uh, two different arguments uh, about how people decide whether we're, we're winning a war. The first is what I've come to call uh, rational expectations theory, along with uh, Scott Gardner and some other people. <coughs> this is an argument that says that the public is responding to real world events. And in particular, consistent with the jell Fever rifle argument, responding to casualties and battlefield outcomes. Um, moreover, um, we argue mm-hmm. that um, when responding to these kinds of events. The public, in particular, responds to new or surprising information and basically updates its beliefs um, about what's going on in the world based on surprising information they're exposed to. The alternative model, um, again, this is building off of John Dollar, Adam Borinsky, and, and, and folks like that, says that's not what people do. Um, people actually just rely on partisan, um, on their partisan identification, for determining uh, perceptions of success. So they would say in response to the last set of results that I just showed you, sure, you can show me that um, success matters more than party ID, but you're only finding that because uh, party ID actually causes perceptions of success. And so the public doesn't actually know anything about any of these issues. Uh, they simply echo back to their elites um, what uh, the, the, the cues that they're getting uh, from their leaders. There's, Uh, We were fortunate enough in the book manuscript to have a little bit of information that uh, started at least to speak to this issue. Uh, We were fortunate enough to have our question about uh, do you think uh, we're succeeding uh, picked up by uh, MSNBC and the Wall Street Journal, and they ran our question on one of their polls. And they were in the field um, on uh, uh, December 13th and December 14th, 2003. And we were lucky enough to be able to organize the capture of Saddam Hussein on the uh, on the evening of uh, December thirteenth, two thousand and three. So we have the the respondents who who, who uh, answered on the first day, and then we have the, the respondents on the fourteenth, the day after. And you can see from the data there that in one day we saw an eight percent boost in um, the likelihood that somebody would say we are very likely to succeed in Iraq. I would note that that eight percent is probably in uh, undercounting of the overall total effect because a bunch of people, even though it was reported a lot um, the, the next day, a bunch of those people probably still had who, who took the poll on the 14th probably still hadn't um, uh, hadn't heard that, that we got Saddam, and unfortunately, they didn't have a question, they had not prepared in advance a question saying, Did you know that we captured Saddam Hussein? because didn't know that they would. So, um, but, so we do have this sort of field experiment from real-world battlefield information that suggests that um, uh, that actually people do update their, their attitudes based on surprising new information about capture about dissent. But that kind of experiment um, doesn't really allow us to make a direct comparison between um, elite partisan cues and uh, and battlefield information because there were you know they, we didn't have a corresponding um, elite. Uh, elite rhetoric treatment. And so in order to address this question, um, um, I got uh, some support from the National Science Foundation to run an experiment um, <coughs> that, ex- that um, presented subjects with a variety of fictionalized news stories. And it's a three-by-three three, uh, design. There were two different treatments um, that were embedded in these news stories. One was a treatment about military events that were reported in the news story, and you could either get no military events, you could get um, positive uh, military events, so this was um, good news about uh, a reduction in violence in Iraq um, and progress toward uh, political settlement in Iraq, um, uh, or negative uh, uh, battlefield use, so this, this is information about continuing violence in Iraq and, um, and political stalemate. All the information in the stories um, were taken from actual, um, actual news stories in the Washington Post and the New York Times. Um, I tried to keep sort of the sentence length, the vocabulary, the overall length of the article, and so on, similar to a Washington Post story. What I did is I took those different sentences and so on, and I parsed them out into an all positive story and an all negative story. So, so, um, so. None of these stories actually ran, so they're fictionalized in that sense. But they, but we tried to mimic um, what was really said. Then, in addition to in, in addition to that, there's a presidential response treatment, um, and so they either get no response from President Bush, they get a positive, you know, we're making progress, we're moving ahead, uh, quote from President Bush, or they get a, a negative. Negative may be too strong, but they get a cautious. Um, uh, from President Bush that talks about setbacks in Iraq, and how things haven't gone as well as, uh, as we would have liked. And again, those sort of taken were taken from newspaper quotes, but sort of parsed out into the, into the positive. So to the extent that the um, rational expectation theory is correct, what we should see is um, we should see the military event cues really um, influencing people's uh, uh, beliefs about Iraq. And in particular, we should see um, Democrats and uh, independents, who had become, by the time I'm doing this experiment in the spring of 2008, they've become very negative on the war. We should see Democrats and independents respond to the positive news treatment because that's going to be surprising to them. They're going to update their views. Um, whereas we should see uh, Republican, but we should not see them respond to the negative treatment because that just tells them what they already know. Um, and whereas we should see Republicans uh, respond to the uh, the negative treatment, the negative uh, information from the battlefield, because that's surprising to them because they have a, a, a high expectations about how, how the war's going. But they should respond to the positive treatment. Now, if the partisan, um, uh, the partisan cues argument is, is right, on the other hand, what we should see is people not responding to these military events, but instead responding to President Bush, and in particular, we should see Republicans respond to President Bush. So Democrats and Independents. Probably would not should not respond to President Bush because he is not a co-partisan with them, and so they should not find his message persuasive. But Republicans who get a positive cue from Bush should bump up. Republicans who get a negative cue from Bush. So um, here's the uh, here's the data I got on um, the treatment effects of the uh, uh, the military events cue. Um, there are three different dependent variables here that I looked at. One is asking people, do you think the surge was a success? This is, do you think the Iraq war will be a success? So this is the same Shelby Fever rifler question from the previous work. And then, uh, do you oppose a timetable for withdrawal? By the time I'm doing this study, uh, the question of, should we have a timetable for getting out of Iraq was really the central policy issue. So I asked that instead of a casualty question per se. Although, actually, um, I found that the answers to that question map really, really well onto whether you say you're going to tolerate casualties and I'd be happy to show you those data in the QA if you want. So, three different dependent variables for Democrats, independents, and Republicans. Um, the big bold numbers there show you statistically significant treatment effects. <coughs> um, these are actually um, predicted treatment effects from a statistical model, but it actually worked exactly the same. If you just do difference of means tests, it was not, not modeled at all. Um, so, and what we see here again is, is uh, Democrats responding to the surprising good news story and increasing their um, belief that the surge is succeeding and that the Iraq War might succeed. They do not, however, update about the, the uh, timetable question, and I'll come back to that. Getting even stronger results for um, uh, for uh, independents who really strongly update um, in, in a more supportive way to the surprising. Um, uh, good news cue. Um, on the other hand, Republicans do not respond at all to the good news message, um, or it's not statistically significant, but they do significantly reduce their um, belief that the surge is a success, and they do significantly reduce their um, opposition to a timetable for withdrawal when you give them what is to them a surprising cue, which is the negative story. Um, the uh, on uh, uh, the of the overall war in Iraq, uh, this gap is, is in the right direction, but it's not quite statistically significant. There is a significant difference between the uh, negative and the positive news stories, but this news story was a little bit lower in support, and, and so it's not quite statistically significant, but it's in the right direction. Uh-huh. Yeah? That's not statistically significant. I wouldn't okay, make sir, anything of that Just That's just noise. Yeah. There is a different slightly surprising uh, effect for independence. It's also not quite statistically significant, so I don't make too much of it. But they seem to really not like President Bush. So if they get any kind of message from Bush, and it goes down, no matter what he says. <laughs> just having, just being exposed to the message from Bush <laughs> drove, uh, drove independence down in their support for the war. Um, but what we re- see, really see here, overall, basically, is Bush flatlining. Um, so it's not surprising that he doesn't have any um, any impact on Democrats or Independents in terms of their support for the war, the Republicans uh, don't respond to uh, uh, don't respond to his new rhetoric either. Neither uh, sort of rallying when he says uh, things are going well, nor even responding to the surprising cue of him saying things are not going so well. So, in an experiment like this, um, you, uh, you always need to uh, to do some checks to to make sure uh, that that the causal inference I'm making here that it's really exposure to the story that's changing people's opinion um, is reliable. Um, So um, I looked for contamination or interaction effects between the two treatments, because there are two treatments in one story. I didn't find any significant interaction effects. Adding all the interaction effects uh, doesn't help the model do any better in in, in predicting um, people's opinions. I also um, uh, took out all the, uh, I looked only at the people who got no military events treatment and just tried to isolate Bush and just look at the Bush treatments by themselves. Again Bush had no effect. Um, I looked at um, whether or not people actually paid attention to the news story, so I just asked them at the end of the survey, uh, did you read the news story? that that I gave you earlier. Did you read it closely? Did you skim it? Did you not read it? And not surprisingly, um, the treatment effects work better, much stronger than what I showed here among people who said they actually paid attention to the news story. Um, It actually sort of increases my confidence that maybe it really is the news story that's making you do that. Um, And I also looked at whether these effects um, are generalizable across the whole public particular building off work by people like John Krosnick, I looked for um, whether there was an Iraq issue public. So uh, I tested for people who said that Iraq was the most important issue facing the country. Um, the treatment effects I showed were significantly attenuated from what, I, from what I showed here. So for those people who really, really care about Iraq as an issue, this is not surprising. They've thought a lot about it. They have a well-formed attitude, and exposure to one news story does not shift them so much. But for people who are not um, so focused on Iraq um, uh, the treatment effects were actually bigger than what I showed. Also, I found that uh, treatment effects were increased among people who said they follow the news a lot. So, the impact of reading a newspaper story is bigger for people who say they like to read news stories. Um, A bigger concern maybe than internal validity for an experiment like this is external validity. So this happened like when I fielded this in my nice little online uh, survey that, that people did, but does this actually connect to the real world in terms of how people actually watch the news? And I think there are some concerns here about how generalizable this is. Um, First of all, as I said before, I created this all-positive or all-negative story. And that's not how the news mostly gets reported, right? So uh, the reality is that news reporting is more mixed, and I've isolated this effect of of surprising events. Another possibility is um, that uh, Bush had basically lost his spin. And so the, the elite rhetoric thing doesn't work by 2008 because nobody pays attention to President Bush anymore by 2008. Um, I think that's possible, but I did rerun this, uh, this experiment later on in the fall of 2008 with just generic Democratic and Republican senators, and still no- nothing didn't, didn't move the needle on, um, on attitudes towards law. Um, finally, I think one of the most important caveats, and I'll come back to this when I talk about some of my current research very briefly, is that what I've done in this, this experience, experiment is I've forced people to be exposed to. A neutral news source event that was surprising to them. Um, but we know that in the real world, people get to pick um, what, uh, what news they listen to. And so it may be possible that especially in the, the new kind of news environment that we have today, um, with cable news and, and so on, um, that people can avoid exposure to surprising information by, by picking, out the, um, uh, picking out the news that she's to. so, to. Despite those caveats, is there any real reason to believe that that something like this would have a, um, uh, a long-term effect on people's opinions? Um, I certainly think that the treatment effect for reading one news story, like I did in in in, the, um, in this experiment, where I have him read a news news story and then five minutes later I asked him what he think about Iraq, you know, that's probably sh- that that one uh, news story is probably short-term effect. But I do think there are real-world parallels that show that larger aggregate shifts in patterns of reporting can actually have um, a significant effect. So for example, um, reporting on violence in Iraq dropped from 50% of the stories on Iraq to 30% um, between July and November of 2007. That's data from the Project for Excellence in Journalism. And um, immediately following from that, we have a real sort of aggregate shift in perceptions that the surge made things better in Iraq. So I think there is sort of a um, Uh, real-world aggregate parallels to uh, these these small-scale micro-effects that I'm showing here. So, in conclusion, um, I I find strong support for um, what I'm calling the uh, rational expectations model of, um, of attitude formation toward war. And in particular, what I mean by that is that strong support for the argument that people's willingness to pay costs is a function of their belief that the war is the right thing to do, that is justified, weighted by the likelihood that they think we're going to succeed. And in particular, for ongoing conflicts like, um, like the, the war in Iraq, or now the war in Afghanistan, um, perceptions of success are really what, uh, what matter the most. Just as importantly, I think I show that perceptions of success are not purely um, a creation of elite rhetoric. Uh, no matter how many victory banners you hang or whatever, that, um, uh, that they're actually, battlefield information actually matters. Um, I do want to acknowledge that um, some evidence of, there is, there is some evidence of biased or partisan processing in my data, so I don't want to claim that it's all a good news story. Um, the, uh, in particular, I mentioned before, uh, I, my uh, good news treatment does not shift uh, Democrats in their op- in their demand for a timetable for withdrawal, I would argue that's almost certainly a function of real-world um, elite rhetoric effects. Because at the time I'm doing this this uh, study, the leadership of the Democratic Party is pushing very very hard on timetable, 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 and so I think that kind of real-world um, uh, that that real-world confounded my treatment effects in in my experiment. Um, but the bigger evidence, I think, of partisan processing really are these wide initial partisan gaps. How do we get to the point where the Democrats' support for the war is down there and the Republicans are up there? There's got to be something else. I, I, I think I've shown strong evidence that this kind of updating process goes on, but there's got to be other things that are going on as well. Um, and so I'm exploring some of that in my, in my current research. Um, connecting back to. Um, uh, some of the sort of broader conclusions that I think can be um, that can be drawn out of this work, um, I think uh, this work shows that the public really is capable of providing an exogenous constraint on the use of force. Um, there's a wonderful turn of phrase that was uh, uh, developed by Matt Baum and Tim Groering called the elasticity of reality. Um, and also, in thinking about um, uh, also in thinking about sort of public opinion and war sorts of stuff, and their argument is that. Uh, in the early stages of a conflict, um, definitions of reality on the battlefield may be highly elastic because people don't have a lot of information. But that over time, a reality loses its elasticity during a war, and that reality sort of reveals itself to um, to people about whether we actually are or are not succeeding. And I think that is a good news story in terms of the ability of the public to um, to place constraints or to ensure that American foreign policy comports with. Uh, public preferences. The the big caveat I would place on that is that this this um, effect really depends on the public having adequate access to information, and in particular, access to surprising in, su- surprising new information about what is going on on the battlefield. Uh, in terms of IR theory, I think this work uh, tends to lead uh, to lend support to some theories of the democratic peace and not so much to others. In particular, I would point to uh, Bruce Buena de Mesquita at all's. Um, model of the democratic peace and a variety of other phenomena where he argues that what democratic politicians really need to do is to provide policy success uh, for their constituents and that's what's going to keep them in office and so um, democracies are are, um, driven to try to succeed. I think this public opinion data sort of um, supports that kind of mechanism. Other mechanisms in the democratic peace that focus really on casualties, um, just directly on aversion to casualties as a constraint. Are not so much supported. So, building off of this work, uh, let me just uh, real quickly say a little bit about where I see myself going now. Um, uh, As I said before, I think one of the big um, key criteria that needs to be met in order for the public to do this sort of this this updating of its of its preferences is that they need to gain information and potentially surprising information about what's going on in the battlefield. So I've become interested in understanding how the media um, shape perception of battlefield information. Um, and in particular, I have a paper uh, called Preaching to the Choir that looks at um, the uh, the impact of exposure to Fox News, to MSNBC, and to Comedy Central as, uh, as news sources. I'm trying to get on the Colbert Report. So. Um, so it um, looks at news source um, and tries to separate out how much of, there are obviously these huge gaps right between people who watch MSNBC and, and, and FOX, but how much of that is self-selection and how much of that gap is actual causal impact that watching the news is having. So I have a, um, I have a paper that's looking into that, I also have another paper that's looking into the spillover effects of battlefield information. So information about Iraq, how does that, how does that spill over into the way that we evaluate um, Afghanistan, um, and finally, uh, a lot of the stuff I've been talking to you about today is very um, cognitive. It's a very, it's a very sort of uh, information processing kinds of arguments. I'm also interested in exploring how um, it, how people may use other kinds of smaller cues, maybe emotional cues, cues from images, and so on, to um, update. Uh, to update their attitudes in these kinds of ways, even though they have very little information. Because one thing we know about the public is that they don't know a lot about it, about international relations, but they do seem to be able to update in sort of reasonable ways, and so maybe they use um, small cues from images and news stories and so on to try to update. And with that, I would be very glad to take your time.
0: Do I just do the.? Not a question, but more of a comment. You, you tested for President Bush making a positive comment on war. But by the summer of 2007, he had really turned his role as spokesman to the Iraq conflict over to General Petraeus. And I'm wondering how the data, how you think the data might have been uh, changed right. had, had you uh, had General Petraeus as the, as the person instead of uh, President.
1: So, in the follow-on story, I mean, I think that's a fair point, and in the follow-on, the follow-on study, sorry, um, I didn't use Petraeus, I thought about using Petraeus, and I didn't, I went with Democratic and Republican senators, because the argument that people like Zoller and Borinsky and people like that are making is really an argument about party ID, and how I identify with you because we share a party, a link, and so I believe what you say. Um, Petraeus is not that sort of partisan figure, that's probably part of why Bush, Wanted him to do that, but it makes it harder to test this argument. But I certainly think I, cer- I certainly think you're right that um, that uh, he may have he may have had a, a powerful effect. Although I think although I think you know Petraeus was a compelling figure in a lot of his testimony. But I think if it wasn't backed up by a bunch of stuff that actually happened in Iraq or a bunch of stuff that stopped happening in Iraq, um, I don't think Petraeus getting up there and saying mission accomplished just as much as Bush saying it. I don't think that would have any. But but it goes to your thesis of are we succeeding as a military figure says, yes we're succeeding, Your we're do that, but if I come, it might be more credible than each maybe, I mean you, you it, this would be an interesting thing to see whether if if it were backed up by data, whether that would be a cue that would that would uh work across um uh across party lines, to, you know, maybe to, especially at least to reach out to independents and you could see whether party elites would have one kind of effect, whereas, you know, especially military elites, because of the way the military is viewed, you know, it's the most respected, except maybe the Supreme Court, but most respected institution in America, and so on. So, um, so yeah, that's a good idea. Uh, I don't know. I'll go with John. Yeah, right. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> <But>, uh, <laughs> there you're getting to the reality matching up with the rhetoric, too, so that's it mm <laughs> Fair point, but, um, and I would say, so, saying what support, for, I, I always hate phrasing it as what is support for the war, because it seems to me the support for the war is such a multi-dimensional thing, right? Like, so, you know, there are various points where, during uh, well, the war, the war right? so, um, yeah, a lot of those are sort of are sort of retrospective uh, questions. But where I, I would um, but I think I think it's a fair point that those ser- those sorts of things did not move very much in in the um, in the aggregate. Um, I, I would say a couple of things about that. Um, one is that um, uh, that I think Republicans were, were shifting at that time toward the notion that we were going to try to wind things up in Iraq and, and, as well. So so I think there was. There was um, you know, the possible exception of McCain, but uh, even Bush, e- even the Bush administration started acknowledging that you know we would, we would be getting out. But the bigger, uh, the bigger thing I would say is what it really did is it dropped Iraq off the radar screen. So if if we had not had the surge and people had not um, had not increased their perception that we're winning, we're making progress, the pressure to get out of Iraq um, very soon, like within you know nine months or so. On Obama would have been very, very high. But what the what I think the surge did was it basically dropped the level of concern that the public had about staying in Iraq down, so that Obama had the um, had the ability to uh, to make a, a variety of different decisions and eventually basically stay for much longer than he did. Thought he would because he was not under a great deal of public pressure to get the troops out and I think he wasn't under a lot of public pressure to get troops out because of the surge and his perceived success. not any, well, I mean, I would, well, we can talk about it more, uh, we we can talk about it more after the talk, but I would argue that that effectively is, the the, the, the fact that the public stops pushing for troops to get pulled out is effectively, uh, the the public stops demanding that the troops Right. So I guess I'm wondering how we get started. Right. And does the casualty mean one to mean something different So So uh, that's a great question, and um, I think it it definitely is the case that and this is something that John pointed out uh, in in Iraq syndrome piece. I think um, that we have had a so I would argue that the the um, the causal model that explains support for Vietnam and support for Iraq um, are very very similar, but it's happening at an order of magnitude lower in terms. Of, right. So so four thousand killed in Iraq is the same as forty thousand killed in um, in at, in um, Vietnam, and then you could go back even farther. To, you know. So. So I agree that there has been. Um, so what, what we try to explain in the book is that this, this causal model, we think, is, uh, is pretty consistent a, across at least the time period that we're looking at from Korea to the present. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that there's this other process going on where we are, um, uh, where, where we are responding to casualties at lower levels. And then so in that sense, are more casualty averse. I, I, I don't have data. To uh, to uh, to give you an answer, but I have some speculation, so I'll share those anyway. Um, uh, which is, I, I think there I think there are a couple of things going on, um, but but I think the main one is the expectations that people have about what's a reasonable number of casualties. So the increase in um, uh, the increase in technology and um, uh, and the way in which we've won conflicts like the first Gulf War with such a small number of casualties and so many high-tech weapons has really um, reduced people's expectations about what's a reasonable number of casualties in order to accomplish a particular military mission. So that would be my hypothesis. But there are other hypotheses out there. Another hypothesis could be that yes, the population is bigger, but family size is smaller, for example, so people may care more um, about uh, losing one. uh, so this isn't my argument, but uh, but if you only have two children, you don't want to lose one of them, or if you have six, then
0: you <laughs> <laughs> Oh
1: wait, but also I wanted one more thing on the um the, the how well does it travel back in time. One other caveat I would be, would want to place on all of these results is basically all of the um, elective conflicts; these are wars that the United States can choose to be in if it wants, and um, choose to avoid if it wants. Um, and so, it seems to me enti- it seems to be possible that in other types of conflicts, like perhaps World War II, you um, might see a different kind of dynamic. So, success, for example, might matter less there simply because it's so much the right thing to do, or even to the point where it's not a choice, right? Where it's perceived as something we have to do. Um, that, that this argument might hold up less well. I just don't, I mean, there's a little bit of data out there on World War II. Adam Berinsky spent a whole bunch of time digging through because it's not, it, it, it's not um, uh, representative samples, and so he spent a lot of time trying to clean these data and so on, but the, the bottom line is I think the data is just very thin to say whether this would work. I'm not so much worried about over time, but over type of mission and, and whether certain kinds of wars are, are different. Yeah, that's a great that, that, um, that's a great point, and that's actually one of the very one, very last bullet point I had up in the um, up there about future research. Um, in tr- one of the uh, I'm working on a paper right now with um, with Scott Gartner um, at Penn State, and um, we're looking at similar kinds of news stories to this. But what we're doing is uh, there's the good news and bad news stories, but we're adding images. So these were just news stories with no with no images, and so we're having. Um, battlefield images that we uh, that we uh, think look like success, and battlefield images that we think look like failure, and then um, and then seeing how people respond either just to the text, or just to the image, or to the combination of the text and the image. It's it's work in progress right now, but actually what we found so far is um, that it doesn't matter which cue you get. It seems to be the same information that's communicated. So. Um, If you just give them the uh, the picture of failure, it's the same as the text of failure. It's the same as both of them, so that it doesn't matter across media. However, we don't have video, um, and uh, so that that would be a limitation. But that's one piece of information that suggests maybe that difference isn't as big as we think, and it's really about the information. (laughs) <laughs> yes, American killed action. Give them on the, the casualty figures. I, I have a, a, um, a database answer, and then, I, and then I have speculation. So, um, uh, we have run uh, experiments where we give people information on killed in action, and then we give people information on killed and wounded, so which are which are actual casualty, you know, which is when, when you technically say casualty, that's what you mean. No, so, no, no, I understand all, yeah, I've got several, yeah. um, and um, so, and that makes no difference. Um, so, and I think it's because they're, they're very correlated. Do other people's casualties matter? is very hard to is very hard to measure for a number of reasons. First of all, um, in the aggregate, I think um, uh, civilian casualties generally don't matter very much because it's hard for people to gather information about them. People don't know how many civilians have been killed in Iraq. We don't know how many civilians have been killed in Iraq. So it's not something to get reported on in the same in the same kind of way as as U.S. casualties. I mean, so if you think about something like the Lancet study, and they went into Iraq and they spent all kinds of time and effort doing this, this survey based on GPS sampling and stuff to try to figure out how many, uh, how many people have been killed in, uh, how many Rockies have been killed in the Iraq war. They came up with, in, in the first, I think, six months, it was the, the best guess estimate was 250,000. Um, but the confidence intervals around that guess were so huge that everybody, that basically the study just sort of faded away. So I, I think it's hard to get people to pay attention to civilian casualties because we know so little about them. Um, you can do experiments about how, we, how much people care about civilian casualties. People say they care about civilian casualties just as much as they care about, um, uh, just as much as they care about U.S. soldiers getting killed. So if you do an experiment asking, you know, X number of U.S. soldiers getting killed, do you support the mission? X number of civilians get killed. It has exactly the same effect. Does that mean in the real world that they really respond that way? I don't know. Um, and I forgot your second question. Uh, American oh, American right. Um, so that's a great idea. I would love more money for more research to um, uh, to do that in other countries. Um, they're, they're, uh, I c- I could see an ar- so um, I-, I could see an argument about why this sort of perception might be culturally limited, right? The focus on success might be something that is that is culturally limited to the United States. Maybe we're a culture of winners, and, um, and that's, that's what we like. I could also see an argument that this would generalize. I don't know. I would love more data to do this survey. Yeah. So, um, so I don't know is the answer to that question, but I'm, but I'm glad to speculate. because so it, it's an interesting, um, uh, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> my, my uh, one-person um, focus group. Um, so, um, I would say a couple of things. On first, uh, it's important to understand the Matter, um, uh. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's something that would be really interesting to try to dig into and to compare to this. And it could be that it matters a lot. Again, I'm skeptical that it matters a lot um, because I think it's so hard to get really good information on how many people are being killed. Um, so even if it mattered in, in an experiment, if you show people you know, Al Jazeera as opposed to Fox News, um, it, might, it might have an effect. Um, whether that's really going to translate to the real world. Oh, uh, Abu Ghraib did um, uh, oh, it's going be too far in the back. Um, uh, Abu Ghraib did cause a dip in support. so there's actually right before they turn over authority to uh, uh, the new um, Iraqi government. Um, there's this dip in the graph of, of presidential approval and of support for the war. Um, so, and that, so th- there was a significant, um, th- there was a, a statistically significant drop. Although it then, it then popped back up. And, and, and so it was short term. Was it short term because people, uh, because things turned around on the ground in Iraq and we're heading toward the ink finger elections and so on, or uh, was it, was it uh, a blip on the radar screen? Because people won't care about civilian casualties, I can't say for sure. sure. Um, but well, there it was also military success at the same
0: time. We were opposing the uprising, the body a great deal of success the So that might have had an impact Right. Right. The, and, uh, <laughs> and we have success, with think, in No, actually, we did <laughs> that later. That That's a would argue. First, no, that's all. Right. Yeah, you yeah. yeah, You're right. So you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Without yeah. it, yeah, that's of the about patatees and the later on of perception of success. So it seems like my intuition for being driven to listen to the story and the like later one. Kind of the be a an intuitively acceptable definition of reality and success on the ground. But the 8% boost overnight
1: confident that it's the battlefield reality as opposed to the okay. representation of the battlefield reality right. about how it will act Okay, so, uh, so a couple different things. One, on um, whether Saddam was real success. I would actually argue, certainly at the time, that there was a lot of concern that uh, that Saddam had been or might be coordinating an insurgency and that getting him would be an important um, way to make make sure that we defuse the insurgency because we didn't know how much he was participating in that. So at the time I think it was viewed as an actual sort of in addition to just the, um, you know, having, a, in addition to just sort of the I don't know, visceral satisfaction of we got them, other uh, there's there actually a belief at the time that that operationally might might matter, um, but uh, so I don't think it's that inconsistent with um, with the other with the experimental findings. the the the, uh, the reporting in the experiment in the experiments is news about increases in American forces, decreases in the number of attacks. Um, by insurgent forces, I was very careful not to mention how many casualties the U.S. had suffered, um, or civilian civilians suffered in in the success uh, scenario, and I, and then I just basically reversed it around so that you know there, I, I still reported on there's an increase in troops, but instead of saying you know uh, overall insurgent attacks are down, I say overall insurgent insurgent attacks remain stubbornly high. Um, and uh, and then there's a, there's a second sentence in there about um, political proce- uh, political progress in the um, Iraqi uh, parliament. So in one, I emphasized the uh, um, uh, progress on um, uh, progress on. Uh, Watching well, the two laws, but there were two laws that they were debating. One of which got uh, got passed, and one of which got didn't. W- w- which didn't, and so I I, just, I flipped those two. So, so it is It's it sort of events. It, I try to make it really events about Is the mission going forward, not, not reporting about casualties and things like that. Now, um, is there too much stuff that gets in the way? Um, I, I definitely think, I mean, from the, the preaching of the choir paper, I, mean, I definitely think there are strong self-selection effects. People uh, do watch the news shows that they like. And I find actually in that paper that watching the news show, in addition to people self-selecting into either Fox or MSNBC that they like, uh, it, it, some, under some circumstances, the news show then itself has an additional causal persuasive effect, in particular Fox News seems to have a strong uh, causal persuasive effect. So um, that, I think, might be that news um, coming after, after my good news story. However, I would point to other work by people like Matt Baum and Tim Groling um, who uh, show that um, even when we have a partisan news environment like this, um, surprising news still can get through. Because sometimes, sometimes MSNBC reports on good stuff that happened in Iraq, and sometimes Fox reports on bad stuff that happened in Iraq. So um, it's when, when, they, um, when you have these, um, I guess um, uh, Baum and groling call them costly, um, costly reporting. I would actually not call it costly. I would call it surprising but whatever words you want to use. But, but um, that, there, that there are those moments um, when you have unexpected reporting from one of these biased channels that can still have this kind of effect. But I think it, it is true that there may be an additional filter. That's what I just showed today that I'm sort of working on now. wanted me to interact the treatment effects with their prior judgment about what the probability was. Okay, yeah. And right. then
0: after it done it,
1: yeah.
0: Your so
1: right, so did. this was definitely was a post test only post test only design, so I, I don't I don't have a pre test measure. Um, it would have been nice to, so and, and that would be something that would be be useful to come come back and do. My concern at the time honestly was that I didn't want to prime people to think about it beforehand and then do the treatment and but you know, I mean that's always sort of the the, the dilemma about do you do pretest, post test or post test only. But I think it would be nice. Yeah. Yeah that's a nice idea. That's a nice idea. One uh, one other thing I would say um, yeah, that's a good idea for, um, um, for setting it up. If you know, as I as I do these again to do it um, pre-post next time and see and see how that holds up. Um, one thing I would say in terms of the post-test only is um, I split it in, in the stuff that I showed you. I split it by party ID. Um, you can also split it by do you approve or disapprove of Bush, and you get the same uh, same result. People who disapprove of uh, people disapprove of Bush. Update on the, on the positive story. People approve of Bush. Update on the, Great idea, and actually, Bill Betcher has some stuff on that. He did a he did an experiment where he he mentioned casualties, US KIA, but then he also mentioned enemy dead, and um, and I think I I think consistent with what we found, and 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 consistent with what you're saying, he does find that um, mentioning enemy KIA significantly increases uh, increases support for the war and things like that. So that may be a, a victory frame. If you will, for, uh, for uh, reporting uh, those sorts of things, which actually makes me surprised. For example, if you think about how um, I don't know, one of the classic uh, examples of the U.S. fleeing in response to casualties would be the uh, Battle of Mogadishu, and um, and you know where 18 Rangers are killed. But the U.S. does huge, huge damage to IP, um and there's almost no almost no reporting. Right, all, the, all the reporting is on the is on is on the Rangers being killed, and not the whatever thousand or, or something else of ID soldiers that, that, uh, that got killed. Um, so yeah. So I think that I think that's um, that's another sort of useful frame about what kind of cues people might use to measure success. I think is consistent. I would be interested. It might be. It might be elective wars. It might be a, ca- a counterinsurgency thing, though, right? Because so that's the. So it might be an elective yeah. war that's not about counterinsurgency. That's not so much the measure, but really, if you're about counterinsurgency, right, you are about lowering the level of violence. That is. That is the
0: goal. So, for instance, in Iraq, uh, you know, the surge we kill more people than ever before. We also take more people in for six months. Of the surge, the levels of violence drop dramatically. The, uh, the Iraq drops off the public radar oh, That's John, John Miller's point about Westmoreland, it did drop off in in tech. We totally killed uh, the Viet Cong as an organization. For it. Uh, and yet public support of the Vietnam drops off the plant. planet.
1: point so that depending on depending on the kind of mission you're talking about, enemy well, KIA know, may enemy yeah. KIA may matter or may not matter. It'd be interesting to try to figure out um, to what extent the public actually understands that. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. well they're being told yeah. I mean they're they're being told by the elite, by by our leaders that we're gonna bring stability and security to the Iraqi people. We're gonna bring stability and security to the these people. And every
0: explosion, every incident, every The, 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 the historian, that's what I would say is the go ahead, go
1: ahead. <laughs> right at the public. I don't wanna make I, I don't wanna make Ha 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 I don't casual um, these reads like the <laughs> interaction approval. What when when you think that? Two thousand and three to two thousand and four. So I ways over the course of the war, that the war itself is legitimized, and so think you get like a Kennedy effect where
0: everybody says in retrospect that they didn't support the war, but in fact they did and so what you see is actually so the legitimate reward that you might find that you legitimate to the war after the war or after the war could so like so so be legitimized by all kinds of war and got created. It, that's doesn't support the down the interpretation of the data now, where you have zero legitimacy or very low legitimacy of the war in general, combined with success, where everybody thinks that the war is not going well given that there's low levels of violence. In Iraq, how do you explain those two facts today? Well, you've had a completely delegitimation of the war, so no one supports it anymore, but at the same time, you still have success. But your draft was completely different today than it did in 2004.
1: The uh, th- the interaction between the two. I actually did this. I did this that same so that that data that I showed you for. All um, right, a I know where I'm at. Oh, yeah. um, um, So I did this again in 2008, and um, so this is uh, the predictions for uh, willingness to stay in Iraq in um, uh, in 2004. This is uh, willingness to stay in Iraq. In, measured uh, by the support for the timetable question in 2008. Um, you can see that, uh, and this is across expectations of success for different levels of approval of the initial decision, and the data are just almost identical on 2008, uh, so I, I think the dynamic is actually pretty much the same. I do find support in, in that study for, you know, reduction in support for timetable based on expectations of success and uh, um, uh, expectations of success and a justification for the war. So I, I think it lasts across across On that note I have
0: If you want the the graph of the casualty or the security incidents in Iraq, I can get it to you. That'd be great. I'd love to have that.